This is Franchise Today, brought to you by FRM Solutions, providers of the best-in-class software solutions for franchise relationship management. Franchise Today is your destination for weekly information, conversations, and interviews with accomplished industry leaders, all of whom share best practices for sustainable growth and sensible franchising. Here now, your host, Stan Friedman, to kick off this week's podcast. Today is Wednesday, May 20th. I'm Stan Friedman, and this is Franchise Today for Week 10 of what's become our strange new world. I'm happy that you've decided to join me today as I continue reporting out stories of the impact that COVID-19 has had on the franchising world as shared by presidents, CEOs, and leadership across brands. We had a great chat last week with Pete Baldean, president of the Moran family of brands, and many thanks once again, Pete, for inspiring us with your leadership and with some of the amazing creativity displayed by your franchisees. All of you pushing the envelope and getting the job done in ways that heretofore had never been contemplated. As has been the case with just about everyone we've heard from since this mess began, franchise people from all market segments are pushing through this thing in some truly amazing ways, and we just love hearing those stories. Arguably, some have been faring better than others, but all all have had great stories to share, and today is no exception, when in two minutes or less, we'll be joined by Topper's Pizza founder and CEO, Scott Gitrich. But first, this quick break and a word about Transitive. Franchise Today will be right back, but first, a word from our sponsors. Hey, Stan Friedman here with a word about Transitive, an amazing marketing platform that actually delivers what others can only imagine, accurate, dependable results that are second to none. All right, without getting too deep into the weeds, Transitive connects franchisees' customer data from all sources, providing high-octane fuel for their marketing engines. They then deploy machine learning, yes, artificial intelligence, which identifies various customer traits and habits, attributes that would otherwise likely go unnoticed, and it segments these customers into groups. This is important because, as we know, not all customers provide your franchisees with equal dollar value. But wouldn't it be great if they could easily identify who's who? Well, that's exactly what Transitive does. And what's more, it then accurately drives the appropriate offers to each of those customer groups, delivering specific personalized messages to each of the group's customers. Just like that, your franchisees are engaged in laser-focused target marketing, delivering them much more bang for the buck. You've got to see it to believe it. So what are you waiting for? Order up a demo today and tell them I sent you. Find them online at www.transitive.io. That's www.transitive.io. Scott Gitrich is the founder and CEO of Topper's Pizza, a great Midwestern pizza brand that's built to survive and thrive anytime, and yes, even in times like these. Scott's unwavering affection for pizza became a full-fledged love affair when he decided to drop out of college and focus on a career at Domino's after only two weeks on the job. Well, that gamble paid off. As he worked his way up through the company's system, Scott stayed focused on having a successful career in the restaurant industry, and in 1991, he decided to kick it up a notch when he created his own pizza concept, Topper's Pizza. Delivering unique fresh food made from scratch, rivaling anything out there. Franchising at Toppers began in the year 2000, and then as now, Scott's relentless pursuit of product excellence, customer delight, and fun has led to some amazing experiences for his teammates, franchisees, customers, and virtually anyone in his orbit. 
Scott Gitrich, welcome to Franchise Today. Glad to be here. Well, Scott, there's no reason why we haven't done this a hundred years sooner, but I'm glad we're doing it now because we're in these strange times that we're kind of climbing out of, and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about how you responded to COVID-19 and how you've been really positioned to deal with a pandemic like this in ways that others haven't. But the first thing we're going to do is the thing we do every week when we start the interview. We roll the tape back. And we pay homage to the fact that franchising is an unintentional way of doing business and that it is not something that people study for and spend their lives preparing for. It tends to find us. So my question for you is, when did that happen and what were you doing? And kind of fill us in on how you and franchising bumped into each other. Well, I'm 56 years old. I started in the restaurant and the franchising business when I was 15, working for an Arby's franchisee in Peoria, Illinois. So that might sound a little bit goofy, but uh, yeah, Aldi Young was the franchise there and you know I had interesting experience there I've never left uh, never left restaurants from that day to this or franchising I, I really cut my teeth in restaurants and franchising working for one of the great franchise companies and now competitor Domino's Pizza and one of my true business heroes Mac Patterson's a franchisee of Domino's still today in Charlotte North Carolina. Just a wonderful person. And I was at Domino's when Tom Monahan was still running the place and, you know, learned so much about. My parents didn't teach me. I learned from Mac and Mac and Tom Monahan. And so that might sound like a crazy way to say I came at franchising, but I came at franchising from the franchisee side and at a good franchise company where the franchisees believed in franchising. And certainly the person that I worked for taught me the value of uh, franchising and that our job was to run great restaurants and and uh, take care of customers take care of team members run a great run a great business but he believed in the brand I believed in the brand I believed in what they were doing I mean, doesn't mean there wasn't some differences but of course you put any two good people in a room and eventually they're going to have differences but you know when I left to start Topper's Pizza back in 1991 it was to bring variety to carry out and delivered pizza. You know, our place in the world was to make everything from scratch, buy uh, fresh products and do unusual things with pizza, like put chicken on it, which was a crazy idea back in 91 when we started doing it. The only place I knew of doing it was California Pizza Kitchen. And certainly uh, Tom Monahan wasn't about to let you put a piece of chicken on a pizza. That's for damn sure. But, you know, I set out to be a big franchise company in 1991. I just didn't know how fun the ride was going to turn out to be. But the first franchisee that, that we had was in uh, 1997, a guy that was working for me uh, at a restaurant delivering pizzas and going going to school, was graduating with a psychology degree, and he and I met over a cup of coffee, and he said, I want to open a Topper's Pizza store. So uh, we scratched out this, no doubt, very illegal uh, <laughs> licensing, licensing agreement, about three pages. You know, we later replaced that with a franchise agreement, but that uh, husband and wife couple uh, Andy and Carol Johnson operate four restaurants and headquartered in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and they are just, you know, they drive a Tesla around and take Disney cruises and sending their kids to college at UW on Topper's Pizza earnings. And you know, those first franchisees were those kind of people, people that knew the brand, that knew me and the business, that worked for me. And, you know, it just kind of trickled, trickled along and we've grown mostly organically with people that meet the brand and, and have grown. But the meeting franchising was really, uh, you know, coming from the franchisee side and learning franchisor side through 
the operation side, to tell you the truth, and caring a lot about the people that that were running those restaurants. I read, I think, that you were two weeks into your job at Domino's when you knew that you were in love with this business and were going to be in it for a very long time. You were still a student then too, weren't you? Did you leave school to go full-time into pizza? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. You know, that that's my story. That's why I dropped out of college, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure she wasn't real happy about it then, but I think probably is a little more proud now than you can imagine. This they were always mom. supportive, and I actually did go back and, and finish uh, finish my degree. So I got a, I got a degree uh, at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater while I was franchisor and running the business. I took a couple of classes a semester for three or four years and finished up. So I kept my commitment to mom. Good for you. I want to ask one more founder day kind of a question, and then we can move more closely to the current day. There's another Topper's Pizza operating just north of the border that I've known for years, and I thought that the name Topper's was born out of their names, their last names being Topazzini. The Canadian version and the U.S. version, were they ever in convergence, or was this just completely coincidental. Well, here's how the Topper's name was founded. I was, as I said, I was working for uh, Domino's Pizza, running 20 stores or so for Mac down in Charlotte, and I decided that I was going to go out on my own. My wife and I were going to start our own pizza place, and we started hatching the concept, the recipes, and the menu, and the uniforms, and you know, just putting it together. And uh, as it got closer, and we knew what the concept was going to be, I ended up uh, hiring these two women. And they were uh, advertising students at the University of Illinois, and I paid them 250 bucks to come up with essentially an identity. And they came up with uh, five names. Let me see if I can remember them. One of them was Mr. G's Pizza. One was Allegro Pizza. So it was uh, Allegro means faster. It's a musical term. Uh, one of them was Spots Pizza. And uh, the logo that they drew up for that kind of looks like uh, Dell Computers. It was like a Dalmatian dog. Let me see. One was Roadrunner Pizza. Uh, it had a logo of uh, kind of a, a Roadrunner from the Southwest, not the cartoon Roadrunner, but that was a pretty cool one. And one of them was Topper's Pizza. So the idea of Topper's Pizza was that it was better. You know, the logo, the original logo was a top hat. And where we were headed was we were going to do unusual things on top of pizza. So Back in the early 90s, you know, there was basically 10 pizza toppings. You know, our idea was to take a page out of what California Pizza Kitchen was doing. They had uh, 15 or 20 restaurants at the time, and boy, they were something else. My wife and I used to go to their place, and holy smokes, they're putting all these crazy things on pizza. And we thought, this is going to take off. This is going to be a thing. And so anyways, we chose Topper's Pizza as the name and took the logo that they had made. My sister is a graphic artist at the time and kind of tweaked the logo that they had made. Anyways, we opened up in 1991 as Topper's Pizza. And uh, oh my gosh, over the course of the next 10 years, I got so many lessons in uh, trademarking and <laughs> uh, all kinds of different things. There's a place called Topper's Brick Oven Pizza that disputed our registration and uh, of the Topper's Pizza mark nationally. And we ended up settling with them. Actually, Hormel sued us, even though we were a customer at the time because they sold a product called Pizza Topper. So we had a thing with them and we learned about the Topper's Pizza in Canada. At the time they had, I don't know, 35 or 40 restaurants. And there's been a Topper's 
pizzas or toppers pop up here and there. And at this point, we own the registered trademark of Toppers Pizza in the United States and are the, you know, have the presumptive ownership to, to license nationwide. There's a small company out in California that a user of the mark that has the rights in their geographic area due to their prior use. But that's the story. No, I ran into the top of Zinis that if I remember right at a pizza conference, a pizza expo or something out in Vegas. And we've exchanged emails, you know, sometimes we'll get get something that was misdirected to one or the other and we'll shoot it over to the other person from time to time. But it's all good. It's all uh, fair and love and war. But no, if I were doing it again from scratch, I probably would have saved myself some money and trademark heartache by coming up with some name that didn't exist in any way, shape or form. And sometimes when I run into folks that want to talk about some great new business idea they have, I always tell them to go to USPTO.gov and check their name. (laughs) That's some sage advice. And frankly, in our audience, we've got a lot of people that are aspiring franchisors that may not yet have finalized plans for their marketing and for their brand name. They may be operating under a name that's fine for their local business, but a name that isn't going to serve them well if they try to go nationwide. So that's a great piece of advice. And it's a good tidbit to share with our audience. To begin with the you know, one mind. of those things that 30 <laughs> years in business gives you is it gives you a, uh, a legal degree of sorts. And I have one of those. I've certainly paid for one at least once or twice over. So, <laughs> so some years ago, you were shooting for a goal of 500 units by 2020 is something I think I read someplace along the way. What I read today is that you'll always own 25% of your chain as company owned. And so it seems like you may have had some transitions in thinking in terms of numbers of units, or maybe today thinking that more dollars generated by the numbers of units we have is more important. Am I on the right track? Well, there's a lot packed into that question there. You know, there's been a couple of spots in our history where uh, we really doubled down on growth and poured a lot into uh, external development and attracting franchisees and building stores. And then there's been other times, you know, 2008, 9, 10, where we were, uh, you know, really in, in a holding pattern, had a lot of financing pulled from franchisees that were in the pipeline at that time. In the last three years, anybody in restaurants knows that it's been an interesting time, a disruptive time. You know, there's been a slowdown in, in restaurants, transactions. Uh, split up among more restaurants and with people challenges of the last three, four years where it's just been so hard to to continue to to grow and go into higher rent places and the challenges of paying people more and more and having you know, just a disruptive restaurant bubble as far as I'm concerned just has caused us to say, okay, let's focus on our current franchisees. We've built a few stores in the last three, four years, and we've also closed a handful of stores in the last three or four years. So I don't know the exact numbers, but we might have, I don't know, making a guess that we might have five or eight more stores than we did three or four years ago, you know, open some and close some and net it out somewhere around there. So, you know, I mean, the the thing that's incredible about the current environment is uh, three months ago, I would have just said that we are in a dogfight for transactions at restaurants and for people. And we're just classic. You ask any restaurant person, this is what we were doing, just fighting tooth and nail to keep people and uh, paying people and charging customers more and our sales increases being almost the lion's share being higher check uh, and transaction 
growth being very, very hard to come by, but fighting the fight. And, you know, today in this environment, the two big challenges of the last three years, namely too many restaurants and not enough people, as far as I'm concerned, those issues are in the rearview mirror. I care about my restaurant brethren. I really do. I love the restaurant business, the restaurant industry. When I meet somebody that comes from restaurants, I know what kind of person I'm that I have in front of me. <laughs> restaurant people are hardworking, good, uh, humble people, and it's a fabulous, uh, fabulous work and, and uh, business. But dang it, there's a lot of people in restaurants that just simply are not going to make it through this thing. There's a lot of closed restaurants right now that aren't going to open back up. And uh, there's a lot of restaurants that are on life support right now through whatever kind of assistance, it simply are going to cease to exist, whether they never open up again or whether they close this year, next year, the year after. There is absolutely no doubt whatsoever that there's fewer restaurants out of this environment, and frankly, there should be fewer restaurants. There's a lot of walking dead restaurants out there in the last few years. On the people side of things, uh, we've already seen the difference in the last few weeks that we haven't had any management turnover, which is just incredible. We just were talking about this a couple days ago about how the turnover in our people ranks basically just stopped in the last several weeks. I mean, 30 million people go unemployed. Why don't we hold on to the current day for a few minutes and we'll come back on the other side yeah. of a break and talk about that. But first, just this, the back half of my question had to do also with the number of franchised units versus company owned units. And I know a lot of franchisors, especially in food, like to keep a couple of restaurants on the company side so that they can always say they've got a test kitchen. But yours seems to be a bit more aggressive than that with what, 25 of your restaurants are company owned. So what's the thinking in having a company owned operation as well as a franchise? franchise operation and how do you delineate? Well, I feel like I'm a restaurant person and we're a restaurant company first and foremost. We built the franchise company on profitable restaurants. I ran those first restaurants myself. We made good money. We invested that money into franchising system processes that others could repeat. And I don't see a reason not to do it. It's where we make money. It's how we make money. So I, you know, it's a driver of revenue. Give me a couple hundred thousand dollars. And what I want to do is I want to buy some ovens and, and uh, open another restaurant. So it's simply that. It's simply that it's a good place to put my own money is, uh, is back into company restaurants. It's it's essentially that. It's, uh, it's almost like a stock buyback. <laughs> it's an interesting perspective, I would think, for somebody doing due diligence to say, look, the CEO and founder of this company is putting his money where his mouth is. If he's investing in restaurants, he really believes in his brand. I think there's a meta message there that could probably play pretty well. Yeah, it's interesting. It plays both sides. It just depends where a person's probably initial inclination is going to be. There's certainly some people that say that, and then there's some people that say, you know, you're going to pay more attention to running your own restaurant than franchisees restaurants. The way I look at it is I'm in the camp that you are, that we run restaurants that make money, that are profitable. That's what it's all about. There's some great brands that only have a single or a small number of corporate restaurants or even none. So we've just done it differently. I wouldn't even know how to do it without running restaurants. <laughs> Having restaurants is a pipeline of people too. It's more than a touch to what we do. It is what we do. It's that we're doing it from the inside out. So that's where it comes from. All right. When we come back from our break, we're going to talk about some amazing 
amazing statistics that have been born out of the last eight or so weeks in your world. While there are many you know, that are struggling to stay in business, as you've indicated, and there are companies that are completely shuttered, you're talking about 12% increases over the last eight weeks in your comp sales over the same eight weeks last year. You're looking to hire 600 new people and create new jobs. So we're going to come back and talk about what's different at toppers that's allowing for all of that to happen. But we're going to do that on the other side of this break. We'll be right back with Scott Gitrich, founder and CEO of Toppers PC. Franchise Today will be right back. But first, a word from our sponsors. This portion of Franchise Today is brought to you by Zoracle, providers of spot-on profiles, the gold standard of assessment tools that assure you're selecting the right franchisees every time. Unlike DISC or others that simply gauge personality or communication styles, Zoracle's spot-on assessments are all franchise-specific and based upon seven sciences that nail the results each and every time. Your prospects simply answer a few questions online, and like magic, Zoracle's algorithms scientifically slice, dice, and analyze their thresholds for risk, their business acumen, and even their propensity for single or multi-unit ownership. Zoracle's spot-on analysis is like having a crystal ball, but there's no hoodoo here. It's all based upon science that flawlessly determines franchisee, franchisor compatibility, and accurately predicts performance. Why don't you schedule a demo today and take a complimentary look and see for yourself. It's the closest thing to a sure thing. Zoracle, spot on assessments based on science, but delivering results that seem simply magical. Check them out at www.zoracleprofiles.com. And we are back with Scott Gitrich. He is the founder and CEO of Topper's Pizza. And we've spent a lot of time with background and talking about your corporate philosophy and corporate culture and getting to where you are today, which I'm certain has a little bit to do with those statistics that I just shared a moment or two ago. 12% increase over the last eight weeks, over the same eight weeks a year ago, and that you're actually looking to increase your payroll by up to 600 new jobs. Scott, let's talk a little bit about the leadership that goes into struggling through a beginning of a crisis eight weeks ago that who knew whether the other shoe was going to drop and what impact that had and how you went all hands on deck to control and manage your business? Well, eight weeks ago, I had a week where I haven't been as scared in business ever as I was during that week. That was a week where chips were just falling forward. March Madness was taken away from us. The NBA closed. College campuses went from saying they were extending spring break to the students weren't going to come back at all. And then businesses started shuttering. Uh, most populated states were starting to close down. And I did models with my CFO of cash burn. <laughs> I've never done that at a restaurant. How much cash do we burn through a week if we're completely closed? And I actually know that number for the first time in my life. I knew how much we would burn through if we were completely closed. It was an existential crisis in my mind, at least. And we started meeting, our leadership team started meeting every single morning, seven days a week at that time. We engaged our franchisees in a way that hasn't left us yet. We just had our Franchise Advisory Council in yesterday for our 
quarterly meeting and the franchisees were talking about not only are we having incredible business results, but we were talking about how our nimbleness and the way that we've worked together as an entire team, franchisees, franchisor, vendors, how we have come together collaboratively to do some just special work. Not only the business tactics that will continue to survive and service in the future, but just the way we've come together. But those first few days, we kept our eyes on every single state closure. And one after another, they weren't closing down carryout and delivery restaurant as essential. And, you know, we kept our fingers crossed that that's the way that it was going to play out. And sure enough, that is how it went. In the beginning, we had attendance issues. Everybody was very, very scared. It was hard in our restaurants because every sniffle, every cough, people thought, this is it. I'm on my deathbed. And we just simply didn't know. It was all so new at that time. We've settled in now. Our people, uh, we've got all of our precautions in place and, and the people that are working are safe and know what's what at this point, of course. Those first three or four weeks that we were open, but people were hunkered down. I've read the term pantry loading. Uh, about the way that people went out and emptied out the shelves of grocery stores. And I've seen graphs of it at this point. I've seen the grocery purchases uh, over several weeks, and uh, they spiked to record levels. And, of course, they waned over the next several weeks as people settled in. But those first few weeks, our sales were down pretty substantially. I think at our worst, we had a week, I think the third weekend, we were down 18%. And it's kind of a remarkable number because we're up 12%. Well, the fact is we're up right now in the mid-20s. So uh, it's outrageous what's we're experiencing right now. Innovation has been a huge part of the of what we've done. We uh, immediately started delivering to customers contact-free. We own our own POS system called Pismet. We have software engineers that build on that, and uh, we did a lot of great tech work and marketing work against our messaging and our services to customers. Ten weeks ago, we had no such thing as curbside pickup, and today we're almost 50% of our business happens through curbside where the customer orders online to pick up. They're able to notify us when they arrive and we deliver it to curbside to places where we've installed signage outside of our restaurant. You know, we see these pieces of paper taped up in local mom and pop restaurants for curbside. And we were able to, within three to four weeks, stand up just an incredible technology, physical store platform to serve customers in the way that they obviously wanted to be served. And frankly, this is here to stay. Some of these things that we, uh, we're rolling out pizza gifting next week for uh, charitable organizations. Our franchisees got involved in their local communities and got incredible organic connections socially to their communities. And it's just been a, after we got past that first two or three weeks, it has just been an incredible ride. Frankly, I'd say that we went from the depths to the top of the mountain in about eight weeks where franchisees are assured of the brand. They're more confident than ever that our segment and in particular our brand has the right kind of footing for what the new normal is going to be like. And when I say new normal, I'm not just talking about for the next year or whatever it takes for for us to get past the pandemic. I'm talking about the trends that were happening with consumers that just jolted forward more quickly, but will continue for years and years. So we feel better set up. 
I'm not kidding you. I feel here eight weeks into a pandemic, I have never been more confident about our concept and where we're headed over the next several years, which is just an incredible thing to even hear coming out of my mouth considering how I felt eight weeks ago. Well, I think the beauty of this too is that it's not just doing the things internally, but you're helping your consumers build trust in your brand as well with the things that you've done and the steps that you've taken and the level of communication, letting them know that you're a safe place to do business. I'll tell you that here in the Atlanta area, when our governor two weeks ago said that beginning next Monday, if restaurants want to, they can reopen, I started taking note of which ones did. He made the announcement on a Monday, but didn't give guidance until Thursday, four days later, as to what it will take for you to be in compliance to open. There's no restaurant responsible operator who could have possibly in three or four days time installed and done all the things necessary. So the places that opened were the places that were desperate. They had no choice but to open. But I don't feel safe in a place like that. Doing it slowly and steadily and taking measured steps and looking professional as professional. I mean, I've seen pictures of toppers, masks, branded masks, like part of the uniform. It's, it's, it gives comfort that I'm dealing with a place that's worthy of my trust. And I think that's something that you've exhibited here in a very large part. And I think you're right about the fall is going to come back around. It's going to be whatever phase two of Corona is plus the flu. So these changes are nothing that's going away, nothing that's going away at all. What percentage of your business is takeout and delivery or takeout versus delivery or sit down? Do you do all three? We really don't do sit down a significant amount, less than 5%. Each of our stores has between 8 and 16 seats, but really it's for waiting. So we're close to 50-50 carry out and delivery. Third-party delivery has become a big driver here in the last uh, several months for us. We self-perform delivery. We also use the biggest delivery aggregators in each market and then carry out. So you throw them into the mix and our delivery all combined is about 60% including self-performed and third-party. Does the product travel well enough that the integrity of your product isn't impeded by third-party? Well, you know, I think one of the reasons that pizza in particular is winning in this environment is because our segment has... For a long time, packaged well, has created products that travel well. We negotiate with our third-party providers to use VIP service so that they use bags. And to tell you the truth, they do a great job delivering very fast, which is the key, really. In our minutes left, I'd like to ask you how franchise development is looking, what's happened to your pipeline through all of this, and what do you see on the horizon for the back half of 2020 and 2021 ahead? So, you know, I checked on the pipeline yesterday as far as where we're getting contact and our contact is, uh, to tell you the truth, it's gotten more fractured in the last eight weeks. So our initial contacts are coming from all around the country versus right around our restaurants, which is kind of interesting. I think we're getting maybe some buzz or maybe there's people that are tracking. They know that the pizza delivery segment is looks like a winner in the current environment. So probably people around the nation searching for pizza delivery franchises is is what we think. We're slated to only open one franchise store and one company store in the second half of 2020. To tell you the truth, we kind of hit the pause button on a lot of our strategic plan there in the third week of March. We said, okay, pause on all of this. We have a lot of other things to focus on. 
And just in the last two weeks, we've gathered together as a leadership team and a development team and said, all right, back to our strategic plan and where we're headed. I can tell you that we have uh, a number of existing franchisees that here in the last four weeks have indicated that they think that, you know, some of these people who are kind of settled in and, and thinking, no, I'm, I'm good. I just want to make, uh, make money at the restaurants I have. Several of those are saying today, you know what, this is probably the right time to invest. Everybody knows and any business person worth their salt knows that this kind of disruption creates opportunity. We think that our opportunity lies in improved real estate, improved math problem on the people side of things. We know that often franchising grows out of recession because people that are out of work or think, screw this, I'd rather go do my own thing, often look to good franchise companies like us. So we're excited about our development. We expect to open a handful of stores in, in 2021, but really be back on in 2022. I mean, the pipeline takes a good uh, nine to 12 months to really heat up. So uh, I'm bullish. I think franchising looks really great for the next three to five years, and we love our segment, obviously. So a two-part question. Geographically, are there places that you're more excited about than others? And second part of the question is, who is it that you are most excited about? Would it be single-unit operators or multi-unit operators? Well, we prefer highly engaged operators. That's what works for us. We've got a tight-knit culture. We're not an absentee ownership type of restaurant. We do have most of our franchisees are multi-unit franchisees. We have 19 franchisees. We only have maybe three or four for single store franchisees, but most of our multi-unit franchisees started with a single store and just built additional stores as they continue to be profitable. And really, by and large, that's the formula that we like. You know, one of the neat things that's happened here in the last several weeks, our home footprint is the Midwest. Our headquarters is in Wisconsin, and about half of our restaurants are in Wisconsin. Our 20-plus percent sales increase that we've seen the last few weeks has been, it's been less than that number in Wisconsin, where we feel that we've already have extremely high volumes and high sales per capita in our markets, but these adjacent markets, Nebraska, Minnesota, Michigan, North Carolina, these have been places that have just been blowing up uh, in the last several weeks. So we don't quite know how to explain it. People discovering it, you know, people that have trusted us for the last three to five years as we've grown in those markets, and now they're really laying it on thick. Minnesota and uh, and Wisconsin and Nebraska and North Carolina are the places that have the biggest runway and best name recognition and opportunities as we see it. College markets versus consumer and suburban markets, do they both play well? Yeah, you know, our roots are in college campuses, but really it's, you know, 40% or so of our stores have a college campus on them. Um, our highest volume stores are actually residential, as we call them, stores. So, you know what, it's pizza. <laughs> it's party One time no matter who you are right it's it pizza works no it's a uh, middle of the road on incomes we like an average amount of density we love small towns but our again some of our biggest stores are in urban areas so it's really uh all through minnesota wisconsin nebraska iowa there's a lot of great opportunity for uh, toppers location those scott areas. is there anything that you wished i would have asked you that i didn't you know i think you've done a good job i think what makes 
Topper special is how Topper's people feel about what we do. I came to Topper's for a passion for the business, passion for the people, believing that we could do something right and differentiated uh, in the market. And uh, I made some good guesses and we've got something that works. And I've latched my cart to a bunch of fabulous people, 19 incredible franchise, about 2,000 uh, wonderful Topper's team members. And what exists in in our values and the passion for what we do makes it to customers and pizza box at the door. You know, you gave me plenty of opportunity, I suppose, but I didn't jump in there and thank the franchisees and team members at Topper's Pizza for what they do. Because no matter the processes and the systems that uh, have been created, it's the people that deliver on the promise that make Topper's come alive and make it special and work. So, Well, there, you just got it done. Got it done now. Thank you for coming and being with us today. Appreciate it very much much. Good luck to all those listeners out there and, and the good franchisors and franchisees that are dialed into, into your program. Scott Gitrich, founder and CEO of Topper's Pizza. Well, there you have it. A great concept, culture, and steady-handed leadership. With all else that we discussed, Scott and I never even got to talk about Scott's new deal with the University of Wisconsin Badger and second-round draft pick by the Indianapolis Colts, running back Jonathan Taylor, who will be partnering with Scott on a four-store deal in the Madison, Wisconsin area. On the field, Jonathan was a three-time All-American, a two-time Doak Walker Award winner for being the best running back in the country, and was in the top ten for the Heisman all three years of his college career. He set the all-time NCAA record for rushing and is an incredible individual and human being, both on and off the field. A smart, articulate, and humble competitor and winner is how Scott describes him. Jonathan is both a team player and a team builder. He's got incredibly high expectations for those around him, and in short, he's a great fit for our culture and will push us all to become even better. Those words by Scott Gitrich. Let's keep an eye on their progress and maybe get them both back to talk about how things are going once Corona gets gets out of the way. Until next week, please stay safe and continue doing the best you can. I'm Stan Friedman wishing you the best, the very best of all things franchising, and Franchise Today is out. Franchise Today is a production of FRM Solutions, providing best-in-class CRM tools to empower relationships with prospective and existing franchisees. No excuses, just solutions. Find them online at frmsolutions.com. Join Stan every Wednesday at noon Eastern for another live episode of Franchise Today, or, as always, download Download episodes on demand at blogtalkradio.com or iTunes.